Thank you for joining me today for Carl Erickson's Sounds and Words, a podcast with a difference. Today we have Joseph Pierce joining us on Sounds and Words. Joseph Pierce is a native of England, a director of book publishing at the Augustan Institute and editor of the St. Austin Review, editor of Faith and Culture, series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, senior instructor with Homeschool Connections, and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. His personal website is jppierce.co. The internationally acclaimed author of many books, which include bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, C.S. Lewis, and the Catholic Church, Literary Converts, Wisdom and Innocence, A a Life of G.K. Chesterton, Solzhenitsyn, A Soul in Exile, and and Old Thunder, A Life of Hilaire Belloc. Joseph Pierce is a world-recognized biographer of modern Christian literary figures. His books have been published and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and Polish. Pierce has hosted two 13-part television series about Shakespeare on EWTN and has also written and presented documentaries on EWTN on the Catholicism of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He has participated and lectured at a wide variety of international and literary events at major colleges and universities in the U.S., Canada, Britain, Europe, Africa, and South America. There's an ancient Roman passage by a writer named Lucretius that seems to convey Lewis's feelings of anger towards God as a young man. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. When do you think Lewis's mind began to move from atheism towards theism? What began to lead his heart and mind in the direction of Christ? Uh, Somewhat well, one might even be tempted to say absurd for someone so young in years. Mm. There's no real, no real excuse for a teenager to be so uh, cynical towards the world. But I think that, that Lewis was really um, had embraced uh, a cynical form of atheism, um, and that was something he held for a while, um, but be- began um, uh, one, once he became an Oxford uh, an Oxford professor in the 19. 19- 20s began to make a rational progress towards uh, acceptance of belief in God, um, but this was not the Christian God, and indeed it was a God that that Lewis not only came to believe in reluctantly through mm-hmm. uh, a rational approach, but a God that he despised. I mean, he had this view of God as as some sort of uh, supernatural sadist who mm-hmm. had got some sort of sick pleasure out of the suffering he he inflicted upon his creatures, whom we might almost call, sort of in a a vivisectionist sense, his victims. Okay. Um, Wow. How was C.S. Lewis's own 1931 conversion from atheism influenced by J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson? Do we know what the argument was that finally persuaded Lewis over to the true myth of Christianity. Yes, we do. But if you if you if you'll permit me to take one step backwards, yes. um, that on on Lewis's progress beyond that cynical form of uh, of, of deism or theism towards uh, towards Christianity, he he was helped along the way. First of all, by George MacDonald and his uh, reading mm. of Fantastes, uh, one of uh, 
George MacDonald's novels, which, uh, in Lewis's words, had baptised his imagination, had allowed him to see things uh, in a Christian sense, even if he didn't okay. believe them. Uh, and then through his reading of G.K. Chesterton, and especially Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, mm. uh, he came to see that what he said was uh, the reading, the understanding of history from a Christian perspective for the first time in a way that made sense. And these were significant milestones. So by the time that, um, that Lewis had that long night talk in... Um, September 1931 with J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, he had come a long way from that cynical perspective, okay. but he still could not bring himself to believe uh, in the Christian God. So that's where we're at at the start of that meeting on September 19th, 1931. And um, what brought Lewis around was Lewis, they were talking about uh, Lewis, Dyson and Tolkien, we're talking about one of their favorite topics, which was mythology uh, or the power of, of story and the power of storytelling. Mm. Um, and uh, in the course of this, Lewis said, but myths are lies and therefore <laughs> worthless, even oh. though breathed through silver. In other words, that we like stories because they're beautiful and powerful in their beauty, but ultimately in terms of truth, they, uh, they tell us lies, mm. and ultimately, therefore, in the bigger picture, they are worthless. And Tolkien responded <laughs> that they are not lies, and then expounded upon uh, what I call uh, Tolkien's uh, philosophy of myth. In other words, the love of wisdom, the philosophia, philosophy, mm -hmm. the love of wisdom to be learned through story, the philosophy of myth. Okay. Um, and uh, that, again, Lewis, Tolkien himself derived a lot of that from Chesterton, particularly Chesterton's um, chapter, The Ethics of Elfland, in his book, Orthodox. So by the time that, that Lewis and Tolkien and Dyson had that long night talk on September the 19th in 1931, Lewis had actually progressed a long way from the cynical atheist and there, and, and after that, the sort of somewhat cynical theist, to someone that at least had, shall we say, uh, a, a sympathy for Christianity, but could not bring himself to believe in the Christian God. And then it was um, Tolkien and Dyson, and especially Tolkien, uh, expounded upon what I call Tolkien's philosophy of myth, and let's break that down. The word myth means story, so mm -hmm. philosophy of myth, philosophia, the love of wisdom to be found in story, the philosophy of myth. Uh, and so at the end of that long conversation in which Tolkien expounded uh, upon the way that storytelling is part of the very fabric of who we are as people made in the image of God, as the imagination itself being the imagination, the image of God's creativity in us, and the fact that God himself tells stories, he tells the greatest story ever told, his own life, death, and resurrection, mm -hmm. and that history is itself his story, God's story, and we're part of that story. So in other words, that truth is conveyed, conveyed through story. And that, that philosophy of myth had such an impact upon C.S. Lewis that uh, shortly after that long night talk with Tolkien and Dyson, Lewis was writing to a friend of his that he had definitely started to believe in the Christian God and that the long night talk with Tolkien and Lewis had a great deal to do with it. Very good. What continuing effect or influence would you say came from Tolkien? Did they discuss issues such as the place of the Blessed Virgin or the role of the sacraments? How deep do you think their conversations went? 
Well, I think that um, that for the most part, their friendship was based upon a shared love of storytelling, um, uh, both um, sharing in, the, for instance, the Norse sagas um, uh, and those great stories, and then in the end, reading their own stories to each other. Um, so I think that's where their friendship mostly mostly was rooted. Lewis very quickly retreated behind uh, a fence of what he called mere Christianity, um, where mm-hmm. he would refuse to discuss doctrinal issues. Um, and I think that Tolkien became somewhat frustrated in Lewis's unwillingness to, to discuss the, the theological differences between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism and between Catholicism and Anglicanism. Uh, and in the end, sort of, uh, um, sort of suggested that, that Tolkien, sorry, that Lewis could not overcome his uh, childhood prejudice against the church, which was why he was unwilling to talk about it. Okay. Indeed, Lewis, sorry, Tolkien said of Lewis when asked why Lewis never became a Catholic, he laughed and said it was the ulsterior motive. And of course, that's a play on the word Ulster, which is mm. another name for oh, Northern Ireland. Right, right. In C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, you highlight part of Lewis's preface to Mere Christianity, which reads as follows, quote, such, such silence need not mean that I myself am sitting on the fence. Sometimes I am. There are questions at issue between Christians to which I do not think we have been told the answer. But there are other questions to which I am definitely on one side of the fence and yet say nothing. For I was not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity, which is what it is and what it was long before I was born, and whether I like it or not. What Lewis is doing there is, again, establishing establishing that ring fence of mere Christianity, which I mentioned. And to be fair to Lewis, there are two types of what we might call ecumenism, uh, trying to uh, encourage dialogue between various different uh, denominations of Christianity. There is the dumbed-down, lowest-common denominator ecumenism, which C.S. Lewis hated, Mm -hmm. uh, which he actually called Christianity and Water, diluting the pure message of the gospel so that uh, so it can be more um, acceptable to the spirit of the age. He despised that. What he was attempting with mere Christianity was what he would call a highest common factor. What is it that all Christians have in common? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a much more useful way of getting dialogue between those who proclaim Christian orthodoxy. Um, so he would, he would say, for instance, that that would be the, a belief in the Trinity. Uh, it would be a belief in the incarnation, but whereas he he would argue, uh, and, he, and to, up to up to a point, a belief in sacraments, but then he would um, not believe necessarily w- what Catholics believe in the full sense of the word as regards sacraments, and he was always coy about the position of the Blessed Virgin, and was always somewhat suspicious of the, of the position of the papacy. So these would be issues that he would say uh, are not. Uh, we, we have not been shown the truth, uh, and of course, uh, Catholics would, would, would disagree with that. Right, right. In Lewis's uh, Fernseeds, uh, Fernseed and the Elephant uh, from 1959, we read the following. A theology which denies the historicity of nearly everything in the Gospels to which Christians, Christian life and affections are, and thought have been fastened for nearly two millennia, if offered 
to the uneducated man can produce only one or the other of two effects, it will make him a Roman Catholic or an atheist. Um, do you think that Lewis, if, if Lewis had lived much beyond uh, November 22nd, 1963, uh, which also, by the way, happens to be the same date of passing for John F. Kennedy and Aldous Huxley, do you, do you believe that he might have ultimately crossed the Tiber and, and joined the church? Well, it's difficult, obviously, to play the prophet in that regard. But mm -hmm. one thing I would say is that Lewis was already a very uncomfortable member of the Anglican Church at the time he died. One of the last things that he got involved in and involved in up to a point prior to his death was discussion of, the, of a new book um, by an Anglican bishop uh, called Honest to God. And this book basically was, was theological modernism, that basically the church needs to move uh, with the world and stay up to date. Uh, it's the sort of modernism that, that, that Chesterton debunked when Chesterton said, we don't want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Lewis would completely agree with that. And he despised the Christianity in water, the dilution of the purity and goodness of the gospel in order to accommodate the, uh, the, the, the meretricious nature of the age. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he said of, of, of Bishop Gardner's book, Honest to God, I'm, I'm going to stay out of the discussion because I could not become involved and retain charity. In other words, oh. you cannot even talk about these ideas uh, without actually um, getting angry. Right. Uh, so I, the point is that, that the Anglican Church has, has descended far more since the years that since the year that Lewis died in 1963 to where we find ourselves today he was opposed vociferously to the ordination of women yeah. he wrote an essay called priestesses in the church and he certainly opposes the modernist um victory quite frankly in the anglican church which has happened i cannot see how lewis could have remained an anglican now that begs the question about whether he would have overcome his prejudices with respect to the Catholic Church's position on the Blessed Virgin and the papacy. Mm -hmm. um, I know what some people do uh, in order to avoid at least the latter issue, the issue of the papacy. Many Anglicans uh, and Protestants um, choose Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it would be odd to see Lewis accept that either because he was very much, as he called himself, an old Western mm -hmm. man. In other words, he was rooted in Western Europe uh, and the civilization of Western Europe uh, and he would have been a rather odd uh, Eastern Orthodox person. <laughs> so the point is that, that, that Lewis has left us with a conundrum. We, we might even call it the homelessness of Lewis mm -hmm. because we know he would not be at home in the Anglican Church. We don't necessarily know where he would have found a home. Um, certainly the Catholic Church would be the logical home for him and the theological home for him ultimately, but it's difficult, indeed impossible, to say whether he would have embraced that home Okay. come home. Very good. Um, what what part or chapter of C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church was perhaps the most meaningful to you and why? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think really grappling uh, with where the anomalous nature, so the later chapters, mm -hmm. uh, grappling with the anomalous nature that Lewis's position as an Anglican led him to, what we, that we've just been discussing, where... Mm -hmm. The, the clarity that he saw in mere Christianity was fading uh, within the Anglican context and, and grappling with uh, what that would mean for Lewis 
uh, both in the last years of his life, which I'm sure it saddened him greatly, but also as regards his legacy as to, you know, who, uh, what does Lewis tell us about Christianity uh, in um, uh, retrospect? And I know Walter Hooper says, and Walter Hooper, who knew Lewis well, mm -hmm. uh, was also an, an Anglican priest prior to his own conversion to Catholicism, said that uh, the Anglicans don't read Lewis anymore. Hmm. Um, in other words, he's been deserted by his own congregation, by his own denomination, because they've become modernist and he's too doctrinaire and too orthodox for them. So the point hmm. is, he's been deserted by his own people, hmm. and the only people that read him these days <laughs> are evangelical Protestants and, and, and Catholics. Right, right. Uh, what would you have liked to explore more in the book? Well, I don't know. I, th I think what I did, I, I achieved. Um, I, um, I, I wanted to grasp the nettle. Uh, it seemed to me that many people were somewhat confused by Lewis's position vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church, but also vis-a-vis -vis Anglicanism and vis-a-vis -vis Protestantism. I mean, who is C.S. Lewis? Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was a question that I wanted to grapple with, and, and, I, and I, I think I grappled with it manfully, and I said what I thought needed to be said. So I don't think I've left anything out of that discussion. What I do, I I'm a great lover of C.S. Lewis, so I've certainly enjoyed, for instance, having the opportunity to return to him in my more recent book, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia, which mm -hmm. allowed me, if you like, um, not so much to, to, to argue with uh, Lewis, but to actually argue for Lewis, mm -hmm. showing the deep theology uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, which is profoundly orthodox. Okay. And, um, yeah, speaking of, of Narnia, Art, um, if you're familiar with the new motion picture on Tolkien's life, how would you compare or contrast its message or accuracy um, to the movie Shadowlands? Uh -huh, that's a good question. I think in both cases, uh, the producers of the film was talk, uh, 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 at best we can say poetic license, at worst we can say downright liberties um, with, uh, with the reality of things. In both cases, we see that um, it, their, their spouses, um, so Edith in Tolkien's case and Joy in Lewis's case, mm -hmm. are, are, are turned into feminists uh, who mm. are more, much smarter than their husbands. And this, of course, is just political correctness and, and ideological newspeak, to use an okay, Orwellian yeah. term. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if, if you could swallow that, there's much that's good in both uh, films. Uh, I certainly am happy to recommend the Tolkien film in spite of the liberties it takes. And as regards Shadowlands, I would just urge people to watch the BBC uh, production of Shadowlands with Joss Ackland playing C.S. Lewis um, and um, Claire Bloom playing uh, Joy Davidman. Uh, it's a much, much better production. It's okay. close to the truth, and it's much better acted. Oh, all right. Than the, than the Hollywood version. Yes, yes. Oh, very good to know. Um, how do you think Lewis and Tolkien would feel about the creation of their books into movies by uh, Adam Adamson and Peter Jackson? Do you think they'd be pleased or disgust disgusted? I think that they would both have problems with it, uh, largely not... In Tolkien's case, even uh, with the very idea of trying to turn a work of literature into a motion picture, I think he might have a problem with that. I think he would probably see that the technology would actually kill the, the magic and beauty mm, of the story. Mm -hmm. 
but I think both of them would have a problem also, and, and to the extent that the the, the films do not uh, adequately or truthfully repre represent the true spirituality and majesty mm -hmm. of the work. You know, so when when, did, when thinking about what Tolkien and Lewis might have thought about the uh, movie adaptations of their works, film adaptations of their works, I'm reminded of the line of T.S. Eliot uh, in his poem, The Hollow Men, where he says, between the potency and the existence falls the shadow. In other words, between the power and the potential of the original and the existence of some sort of translation of it, a shadow falls. And I think that, that uh, Tolkien would certainly think the shadow that falls is the shadow of the fall itself, uh, and I don't think they would be happy. Uh, I would say, by the way, that personally speaking, although I, I see problems with the, the, the Tolkien, the Peter Jackson adaptation of Lord of the Rings, I actually enjoy. Mm -hmm. The Peter Jackson adaptation of The Hobbit is horrible. Oh, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and certainly with the possible exception of Lionel Rich Wardrobe, which was not too bad, the subsequent um, uh, adaptations of Narnia have also been horrible. That's, it, my, that's yeah. my judgment, regardless of what Tolkien and Lewis might have thought. Yes, I understand. Do you think there's a sense in which, the, in which the special effects and all of the technology involved in these productions kind of uh, removes some of the sense of, of mystery and spirituality of the, of the works? Yeah, I think that the irony and the paradox is that the computer-generated aspects of a, of, of a film are the part of the film that goes out of date the quickest. So oh, that yeah. which is... That which is up to date at the time the movie's released and might be one of the most important reasons for its success is the part of it that looks dated sort of 10 years later. And, and again, I'm reminded <clears> of C.S. Lewis's words uh, when he said that uh, fashions are always coming and going, but mostly going. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the case where people try to be up to date with technology in the making yes. of movies. It might be good business, but it's bad art. Yeah, absolutely. Originally, at this point, Joseph Pierce read the poem at the conclusion of his book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, uh, and then we moved on to part two of the podcast. Unfortunately, the recording was uh, lost in the uh, process, and so I'm going to end part one with a reading of the poem myself. One day I heard a whisper, Wherefore wait? Why linger in a separated porch? Why nurse the flicker of a severed torch? The fire is there, ablaze beyond the gate. Why tremble, foolish soul? Why hesitate? However faint the knock, it will be heard. I knocked, and swiftly came the answering word, which bade me enter to my own estate. I found myself in a familiar place, and there my broken soul began to mend. I knew the smile of every long-lost face. They whom I had forgot remembered me. I knelt, I knew, it was too bright to see, the welcome of a king who was my friend. This work was by Maurice Baring. Now we move to part two of today's podcast on sounds and words, and we'll be talking to Joseph Pierce about his poetry. When did you start composing poems? Well, uh, the oldest actually is um, a, a poem called The Hedgehog, which was written when I was about nine years old. Um, but all subsequent poetry I wrote as a child, there wasn't much of it, but I remember a poem called uh, Snow, um, which uh, the, my school teacher, I was middle school age at this point, my school teacher accused me of cheating and copying it from a book, which at the time actually annoyed me immensely because he was basically calling me a cheat, and I was right. like, there, 
maligning me in terms of morality. But now I, I see what a great compliment it was. People <laughs> think that I, you know, I probably both say as a twelve or thirteen year old. Um, it was not younger, eleven, probably eleven year old. Um, was uh, was was something copied from a from a book. So, yeah. but that that poem's lost. I uh, I just remember alliteration, fluffy and flakes and things like that. Um, but um, uh, so then it's, I'm an adult and I I write I love writing poetry. But poetry you need that glorious thing called time. Uh, and that glorious thing called space, um, and uh, my life is so cluttered with commitments and deadlines um, that I very rarely find the time and space necessary to 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 contemplate on the level necessary to write anything worthwhile. So, since the one divinity was published, uh, which was probably I don't know now five or six years ago, um, I've probably written two poems. Oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Just too hard to uh to make the time i can certainly sympathize with that yeah you have um, to slow down for poetry i sometimes say the reading and the writing of poetry is actually analogous to prayer um it takes you out of yourself and takes you into an eternal space um away from the cares uh, of the world um where you can actually contemplate the, the deeper uh meanings of the cosmos i mean very quickly going through what St. thomas Aquinas teaches us you know that you Humility breeds a sense of gratitude. Gratitude opens the eyes to wonder. Wonder allows us to contemplate, contemplatio, contemplate the cosmos. And it's that contemplation of the cosmos that leads to the ultimate fruit, which is dilatatio, the dilation, the opening of the mind and the soul into the fullness of the real, into the fullness of reality. Writing poetry well... Uh, and taking the time to do it, it allows us to, to reach that, 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 that place of dilatatio, which is the highest fruit of, of human contemplation. So I miss the fact that I very rarely have the time to get there these days. <clears throat> and what do you think is behind the, uh, the modern um, distaste for, for poetry? Well, I think that, uh, that they're basically, it's all about time and what time is and what we do with it. So, you know, the, the first thing about time, that, that, that we, there's, we, there's, there's making time, taking time and wasting time. And as regards <laughs> making time, we can't do that. God makes time. Uh, and the poet Jeremy Hopkins, uh, there's a wonderful line in, uh, in one of his poems where he talks about uh, uh, us, humanity, uh, as being soft sift in an hourglass. Mm. In other words, each of us as individuals have a, we have an hourglass, only a certain amount of time mm. uh, of sand in that we can't add one grain of sand to <laughs> what we have in our hourglass. Yeah. We can't make time. So the, the choice we have is do we, um, if, as we can't make time, do we take Time or do we waste time? And to answer your question, I think we live in an age, an age of wasted time, where we're distracting ourselves to death with the, with, with triteness and trivia, mm -hmm. where we're addicted to technology, where we don't actually find the time and space necessary to uh, to to read, write, and appreciate poetry. Poetry takes time. Those two waste time will never take the time necessary for poetry, and that's the problem. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. What sparked Summer Solstice from your Divining Divinity collection? And would you mind reading a uh, reading this poem to us today? I would be delighted to to to, to read the poem uh, and honored to do so. As regards the poem itself, there's a story behind it. 
the poem was written when I was still living in England, so back in the mid-1990s. And um, to, to give the story behind it, it was written in Midsummer, that's the title, Solstice Sunrise. And of course, we're recording this just after the summer solstice here mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. And you know, in, in South Carolina, where I live, uh, at this time of year, it's getting light by about 5.30 a.m. But in England, because England is much further north, um, in, in, in the summer, it starts getting light about 3.30 in the morning. Oh. So you, imagine that, that basically I, I couldn't sleep for whatever reason. And I got up and it was about 3 a.m. Uh, about three o'clock in the morning, so the middle of the night, and I and I put some clothes on, and I lived in the countryside at that time, mm -hmm. and, and so just at the back of my house was country lane, no buildings, just trees and grass and fields, and uh, so what the poem actually uh, describes is my experience uh, of uh, seeing the the the, the 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 light change in the sky. Um, seeing you know, um, crimson spread across the sky uh, just before the sun rose. And as the sun rose, it rose like a, uh, a pure white disc. You know, mm. if you could look directly at the sun. And it reminded me of the Blessed Sacrament and the elevation mm. of the host of mass. Okay. And then, of course, the color of the sun changes from white to red. Uh, and and you, you can still look directly at it at this point. Uh, and then eventually, of course, it changes to gold and you have to avert the gaze. Mm -hmm. And I had this vision of the elevated host, but also white changing to red, changing to gold, being uh, analogous uh, to or synonymous with um, the, the mysteries of the rosary. So mm. white being the joyful mysteries. The, the red being the sorrowful <clears throat> mysteries and, and the gold being the glorious mysteries. So you put all that imagery together and my, my own soul at the time, if you like, uh, experiencing that dilation, that dilatatio we've been talking mm, about. Mm -hmm. And and so that it, so it pours itself forth in this poem, which I, I think is probably still the poem of mine, which I like the best and, and, and might think is the best of what I've written. So, so would you like me to read it? Uh, yes, please. Okay, so it's the first poem. I mean, my poem, Divine and Divinity, ends with a poem called Solstice Sunrise and ends with a poem called Sunset. So there's a uh, obvious uh, symbolism there. So this is Solstice Sunrise. Deep in the dark night of the soul, something stirs. It is I leaving dreams dreary whole as morning stars in summer sky. And ere sun rises from sleep to slumber and dawning of dawn, alone one rises in lazarine lumber to meet the morn. And the world sleeps. As gloaming fades, I stray and wander in gladdening glades to pray and ponder. Of warrior visitor, impertinent imposter, inquisitive inquisitor, mumbling paternoster, in stillness to stare at solitary hair that accompanies my prayer. Does it know? Is it waiting? Is it as I anticipating? It knows, though what it knows, it knows not, distinctive but instinctive and oblivious of oblivion unconscious fire in a Franciscan fraternity. The hair's breath is the hair's breath from here to eternity. And the world sleeps. And as the hair, grasswood grazes, 
Without a care for heavenward gazes, something stirs. Clouds clustered in pagan grey turn a mythic, mystic rose. Heaven's heralds of the day, burning embers, amber glows. Breeze through rushes, shh, and hushes, in silent awe at a maiden's blushes, conceiving the sun. White he rises, and soul surmises, resplendent disguises, concealing the one. Corpus Christi, rising through the rose, sanguous Christi, skyward flows, heavenly host, so new, so old, as holy ghost, turns snow to gold, joy to glory, tinged with sorrow, endless story, new tomorrow. Thus transfixed in transient transfiguration, the impressive impression of mind's gaze becomes expressive expression and finds praise. From deep draught of thought to prayer, tasting sweet living water there, divining divinity. But there are none so blind, blinded by the night, as they who will not see. They neither seek nor find, though reminded by the light. They are, but will not be. Yet as life exhales, passing the life sentence through the lamb's loam, love's exiles in repeated repentance long for home. And world's renunciation wields annunciation, divining divinity, as choirs of angels dressed as birds sing songs of praise too blessed for words in finite infinity and the world sleeps beautiful can you explain the third stanza a bit what do you mean exactly by the hair's breath is the hair's breath from here yeah, to eternity the problem with that carl is um it's a play on words which you can see but yes here. so uh, solitary hair this is h-a-r-e as in a rabbit type creature so as i'm as i'm there in the in the field just before sunrise the only living creature that i can see apart from vegetation is this hair um so the hair's uh breath is the hair's breath as an h-i-r mm -hmm. the hair's breath from here to eternity so basically um the two things here uh, the, the existence of life, um, that which is animated with an anima, the Latin for soul, is the difference between, if you like, time and eternity, the breathing of life into things. So that's the difference between a living thing, a, an animate thing, and, and, and an inanimate thing. Mm -hmm. But also, and higher than that, the difference between uh, an animate thing and an animate thing made in the image of God in a special way, in other words, humanity. So in other words, that whereas an animal uh, grazes, man gazes. In other words, that an animal, the hair, I said grass would grazes, an animal is, um, does what it's programmed to do. It, 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 it does what instinct commands mm -hmm. it to do. Whereas we are given a divine gifts of, 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 of goodness, love, uh, truth, reason, and beauty, the ability to be creative, 
like the creator is creative and to see. So we, we look up, we're not slaves to instinct, mm-hmm. we're not slaves to appetite. We look up and we can gaze at the stars, or in this case, the sunrise, and be moved by that to some sort of communion with the divine itself. Very good. You have a particularly uh, chilling poem in this collection that serves as a kind of frightening opposite to our Hail Mary. Um, where did the prayer come from? Yeah, actually, this is interesting because it's unusual uh, in in the sense that, that, that what this this poem <laughs> doesn't rhyme within itself. It rhymes with the Hail Mary. Um, so you have to know the Hail Mary in English. Yes. In other words, there's no there's no neutral space for 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 for, for man. We can't we, we can't just decide that we're going to opt out of the struggle between good and evil. We either are struggling to be perfect as Christ is perfect. In other words, we're trying to live the life of virtue, regardless of how many times we fall, mm-hmm. or we're not trying to. Uh, and, you know, indifference is uh, the sin of sloth, which is a deadly sin. So in other words, that if, we, if we won't say the Hail Mary, we are effect in our lives uh, saying this alternative dark oh. shadow of it. I, I see. I That's wonderful. One of my favorite poems here is The Bishop and the Virgin. Would you like to read that for us today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this, is my, this is somewhat whimsical. Yes. Uh, so let me find it, page 37 here. Um, so the bishop here, of course, is St. Patrick, uh, and the Virgin is an unknown uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, saint, and, and that, that's part of my complaint is that she's not known, although her feast day is the same as that of St. Patrick. Okay. So the bishop and the Virgin. Shall I begin? Yes, please. Okay, the Bishop and the Virgin. The Bishop rose in the West, the most famous Celt of all, and the faith devoutly was confessed from Cork to Donegal. But the Virgin sank in the East, though risen from the fall, and though all of England knows her least, she is worthier than them all. Patrick preached on Irish sod, the shamrock one in three, he turned the pagan gales to God, for they all were one in thee. Whitburger, princess pure and saint, daughter of a Saxon rex, East Anglian holy without taint, iconic image of her sex. Patrick's day is celebrated in manners quite obscene by men whose faith is mutilated, forty shades of green. Whitburger's day is now forgotten, as indeed is she, by England turned rancid and rotten, footloose fancy and unfree. As Patrick is remembered by policemen in New York, and policemen are dismembered by rebels from Dundalk, I remember England, merry, good and free, and March 17th, is with Burger's Day to me. That's beautiful. Um, and and do you, what can you tell us about this with Burger exactly? Yeah. So basically, there's a golden age uh, of English history uh, from the from the birth of England. England, of course, means Angle land, the land of the Angles. Mm-hmm. So after the Romans left in about 450 AD, fairly shortly after that, the pagans uh, started to move into England. Um, but the Anglo-Saxons were converted um, by St. Augustine of Canterbury, who was sent by St. Gregory the Great. 
And then there's a golden age, basically, of several hundred years from that conversion. So basically from uh, the 600s, the 7th century, right through to the Battle of Hastings, uh, which brought the curtain down, if you like, on Anglo-Saxon England mm. uh, in 1066. So, there, so there's 400 years, shall we say, of, of, of this golden age of Anglo-Saxon Christian England. And the English uh, calendar... Uh, of saints is awash with these uh, Anglo-Saxon saints, of which with Berger uh, is one. She was a, 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 a saint of uh, the East, East Anglia, the land of the East Angles, and that's the part of England that I lived in for the last 13 years I was there. It, it is for me the Shire. It's where my mm. heart is, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, she's very special to me. Um, her shrine was very, very close to where I used to live. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, the fact that no one's heard of her, I find sad, although, of course, uh, only superficially because she's in heaven. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, so, that, so what the world uh, in 21st century England thinks of as somewhat irrelevant on that bigger scale of things. Exactly. Um so, uh, when you were writing poetry more, did you find that the ideas for poems came more when you were busy interacting with people or quiet and alone and in solitude? Yeah, it's, it, it's a time when um, I had space and time, and, and that, that's something I need to try to return to um, mm -hmm. so that I, well, I, I can pray more <laughs> and yes. also write poetry more. Um, I know I live a very very full life and and, to be, and and thanks be to god it, it it's doing good things for for the catholic church and to try to evangelize through the power of beauty and so mm -hmm. I, I have a very busy day every day with the deadline sort of uh hanging over me like the swords of damocles um <laughs> so obviously you know you have to move from deadline to deadline and yes. that, that um these very little time for other very important things uh not enough time for prayer, not enough time for, for contemplation and dilation, one of the fruits of which is poetry. Yes, absolutely. Have you ever uh, considered writing any poetry on perhaps uh, Lewis, Tolkien, or Chesterton? Well, uh, yes. Um, I just sometimes wish that I, that I, that I did um, have more time to do so. If you'd indulge me, uh -huh. uh, there is something that that's called sunrise sunset in this, um, which it does at least allude. Oh right, to yes. Great friend Hilaire Belloc. So if I can read that, because that's somewhat whimsical, and I yeah, I, 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 whimsy's good. So this yes, absolutely. Me. Um, so I, I quote some lines uh, of um, of Belloc, and then I give a, a response. Okay. So this is Belloc. This is the sunrise, and then I do the sunset. Okay. So sunrise, sunset. Whenever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I've always found it so. Benedicamus Domino. But when the Catholic sun doth sink, there's stench of Hitler, Stalin's stink. We hate to say we told you so. Gulag Archipelago. <laughs> and then That's actually great. the next page is actually mm -hmm. a little short poem just called Belloc okay um, so not the bombast of relativism the bombast of mere opinion sanitized by self-righteousness but the bombast of absolutes the bombast of certitude sanctified by servitude to the righteousness beyond the self mm. that's my encapsulation of the spirit of Hilaire Belloc yes yes I think you nailed it. 
Um, so who are some of your own favorite or most influential poets, would you say? Well, I think that a poet that I that I venerate the most uh, as a poet is probably Gerard Manny Hopkins, that wonderful mm. saintly Jesuit poet who really did uh, show us how to see the grandeur of God in the creatures of God. Mm. I mean, I, I, I look out the window <clears throat> as, as we speak here, at a uh, at a, uh, a wall of, of green, we got yeah. those a whole wall of trees out the at the back here, and you know Hopkins has, has shown me how that that should never be taken for granted because in each of those leaves, and there are millions of them out there, mm -hmm. is the grandeur of God. Absolutely, yeah, um, that's that's lovely. Um, well, uh, Joseph, that's all the questions I have for you today. I. Uh, I'm so thankful to have you on and to have had the opportunity to speak with you like this. And I'm so sorry for the, the technical difficulties we've had from time to time today. But um, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. God bless you as well. Have a great day. Thank you.